through dry places. I'll return into my house from whence I came out. And when he's come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also under this wicked generation. In that passage, Jesus draws for us a very graphic picture. And the picture Jesus draws us is a picture of a man's battle with evil. This man that Jesus is telling us about is determined that he is going to evict this evil guest no matter what the cost might be. Because this man, you see, has a longing down deep in his heart. He has a longing to be clean. And this guest is unclean. And the presence of this evil tenant in this man's heart is means that this man is under a certain kind of bondage. And this man has a longing to, to be released from this bondage that he's in. So he rises up and he expels this unwelcome, unclean guest from his life. And here's the great tragedy. Instead of finding the, the peace and the relief that he's longing for, he finds a greater bondage. And all of his efforts at victorious living are futile. And Jesus said, the last state of the man is worse than the first. And that leaves me and you to puzzle over this man's failure. He so wanted freedom from this bondage. He so wanted to be free from this unclean, unwelcome guest. And he's rid himself of it. But Jesus said his last state's worse than the first. This man did not fail because he was indifferent to the evil that possessed him. And he did not fail because he had no interest in living a brighter, better, cleaner life. On the contrary, this man was wholeheartedly interested, wholeheartedly invested in being free of this unwelcomed guest. He had a deep longing for what he conceived to be the good life. And after all, isn't that something that's true of all of us to a greater or a lesser degree? That we have a longing to live what we conceive is a good life. This man did not fail because of indifference to a good life and living a good life. And he did not fail due to a lack of effort on his part. He didn't just sit and wish to be free of this unwelcome guest. He willed that freedom. He willed it so intensely that at God only knows what cost He showed that unwelcome guest the door. 
And having sent that unwelcome, unclean guest packing, he tried to remove all the stains that his evil presence had brought. He called in a maid service. And he had that once unclean house swept and garnished and dusted and lemon oiled and everything in it was clean and spick and span. And more than that, this man did not fail for a lack of desire, a lack of effort, and he did not fail because he'd made up his mind to do something that was impossible. He did, true enough, finally rid himself of this hated guest. And that does not mean that his failure was inevitable. On the contrary, in reality, his failure was utterly needless. Because there have been thousands of others that have found themselves in that same situation, and they've been victorious. So we've got to ask, in the story that Jesus tells, and Jesus says that his fate was worse, he was worse at the end than he was at the beginning, why? Why did this man fail? He failed in the same way that so many folks fail in life. Because he used a flawed technique. When he made up his mind to live a good life, when he made up his mind to be, as we would say, a Christian, he fixed his mind on the evil that needed to be expelled in his life rather than fixing his mind on the good that needed to take its place. He focused his attention on the tares instead of focusing his attention on the wheat. This man was seeking a negative goodness. He thought he could win by merely cleansing the house of his heart of its evil. And thinking he could win by cleansing the house of his heart of its evil, he rose up against this hated guest and expelled him. And having accomplished the task of emptying the house, he thought, hey, I've won. That, folks, was his fatal blunder. Trying to be good by merely fighting evil will be a failure. Emptiness of evil, no matter how complete that emptiness of evil is, is no equivalent for goodness. Mere harmlessness is never holiness. Never has been. Never will be. To make getting rid of evil in our lives an end in itself is to forget what the real objective is. What is the real objective? What is God seeking in my life? What is God seeking in your life? When that farmer sowed wheat in his field, what was he seeking when he sowed that good seed in his field? He was seeking wheat. 
Well, tares came up amongst the wheat because of an enemy. And the servants made the mistake of thinking that his primary purpose was going to be getting rid of the tares. And yet the farmer, he told the servants that I'm putting the raising of wheat first. Raising wheat in my field is the most important thing. And since I'm putting the raising of wheat first, I'm willing to let the tares grow among the wheat rather than run the risk of spoiling and ruining and killing and destroying the wheat. You see, that farmer sowed that good seed and the wheat sprang up and his enemies sowed tares and they sprang up. And that farmer could have totally destroyed the tares in that wheat field. But if he had destroyed the wheat in the process of destroying the tares, he'd have had nothing more than a bare field. And if he had done that, then he would have missed the whole purpose for which the field was cultivated and the wheat was sowed. I remember hearing my grandfather talk about when he was a boy on a farm in Oklahoma, nearly a century ago now, and they would clear new ground on their Oklahoma farm. They had first to go in and they would have to root out the stumps and destroy those things that were growing wild in the ground. And they had to destroy them, roots and all. But when they would clear that new ground and they would go into that field and they would destroy the wild things growing their roots and all, their purpose was not to make the field bare. Their purpose was to give the corn a better chance to grow. That indicates God's purpose in dealing with us. That is what is behind of every sacrifice God calls on me and you to make. God is seeking positive goodness in your life and in mine. So when God asks us to give up evil, it's not so our hands and our hearts will be empty. God asks us to give up evil so our hands and our hearts can be filled with positive goodness. Every renunciation that God calls on us to make is only a means to an end. Remember this, mere emptiness of evil is never an end in itself. And to be harmless is not necessarily to be holy. Write this down, it's on the final exam. Emptiness not only falls short of positive goodness, but emptiness is in itself. Sin. Jesus said, or James said rather, To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. James chapter 4 and verse 17. That means that no amount of don'ts 
by themselves can make a Christian. If merely to do no evil would make one good, I can make a saint out of a rag doll. Adding up don'ts. Adding up don'ts is like adding up a column of zeros on the calculator. I used to say adding machine. <clears throat> By the way, I've still got two of those. But adding up a column of zeros is like adding up a, or adding up a column of don'ts is like adding up a column of zeros on a calculator. The result is still nothing. Not only is emptiness sin, but Jesus looked on it as a dangerous and subtle kind of sin. You take a man out here. <clears throat> it's, it's, it's like that, that old song, you know, the man that was singing, the Lord knows I'm drinking and running around. You take a man that goes out here, cashes his paycheck, goes out and gets drunk, and then he loses his paycheck in a dice game, and then he gets in a fight with the guy he lost his paycheck to. That man doesn't have to come to church to know he's sinning. He's aware of it. And yet I've known folks who do no positive harm and look upon themselves as a choice servant of God and wonder why they haven't grown wings yet. Are you listening? Some of the most critical and pharisaical people I have ever come in contact in my life with have been professing Christians who prided themselves constantly on the thousand and one sins that they were never guilty of committing. And they could pride themselves on the thousand and one sins they were never guilty of committing at the, and at the same time could not point to a single positive good thing they'd ever done. One of the most dangerous and damning of all sins there is is merely to do nothing. And Jesus warned against that more than any other thing. In the parables of the judgment, Jesus' rebuke is never for the one who has done some bold and aggressive wrong. His condemnation is the one that has fail to do some bold and aggressive right thing. The one-talent man was flung out into the night, not because he wasted his substance with riotous living, but because he refused to use it at all and kept it buried. The fig tree was ripe for destruction, not because it had poisonous fruit on it, because it didn't bear any fruit at all. The five foolish girls 
had the door shut in their faces, not because they were antagonistic to the bridegroom, but because they had no oil. The most insidious and dangerous of sins is to have come and grown and gone and never have known the privilege of taking an aggressive stand for what is right. And yet the great tragedy is not only is emptiness a passive sin, it leads almost inevitably to open and aggressive sin. This man in the story Jesus told, he attacked that evil that had its home in his heart and he drove it out. And when he drove it out, he thought his work was done. He had a house that was clean and a house that was empty. But he was wrong. The problem with an empty house is it invites an occupant. Its very emptiness sports a sign that says, For rent in the face of every passing demon. And here's the truth. No house of the heart can be empty. If we don't entertain a good guest, then we'll entertain an evil one. Of all of the difficult tasks in life, and there are a lot of them, there is none quite so hard as being good without being good for something. The futility of this impossible achievement is something you can read about in the life of countless tragic failures right here in this book. And one that immediately comes to my mind is Samson. The Iron Man Samson judged Israel for 20 years. And as long as he was on the job, he was true to his vow of dedication to God. But after a score of years, Samson decided to take a holiday. And he decided to take a vacation, not with his friends, but he took a vacation among his enemies. That was a genius move on his part. He made his way to Gaza. And without any fine love in his heart, he fell in love with Delilah. And that guilty love began at once to search and probe for the secret of his power. And the end of Samson comes with him a blinded slave grinding in the prison house. Leaving off the positive right in his life, he ended by doing the positive wrong. In that way, every empty house of the heart invites a guest, a tenant. If we're going to win... We have to win positively. That's something that's undeniably true in the realm of the physical. For example, how do we enjoy good health? Well, I've known folks that made the mistake of seeking to win by focusing their attention on disease. Folks that constantly felt their pulse, looked at their tongue, and went to the doctor and as a result, they were folks that 
constantly, shall we say, enjoyed poor health. In order to be well, something more is necessary than merely getting rid of disease. We have to maintain a positive outlook. We've got to look at the positive side of everything. We can't see the glass as half empty. We can't even see the glass as half full. The glass is full. Half of it's with liquid, the other half with water. But the glass are with, with, with air. But the glass is full. Half water, half air. It's a full glass. It makes me think about a man that went to a funeral home one night. It was a visitation. It was a really large funeral home. It had eight or ten staterooms. It was in a metropolitan area. And there were eight or ten staterooms where there were people lying in state and and visitations were being conducted and and there were lots of of people there. It was springtime. There was a lot of pollen in the air. All the cars were yellow. You know about that? The pollen was blowing and this man that had gone to the funeral home for a visitation had a horrible hacking cough. And as he's walking through the hallway of the funeral home and he's <coughs> about to hack up a lung with his cough, the funeral director says, Man, that's a mighty nasty cough you've got tonight. The man said, Yeah, but I bet you any of the folks in these staterooms would be glad to have it. We've got to be positive. And the only positive remedy against sickness is health. And it's only by positive truth that we drive out error and correct false faiths. There are folks in our world that are ready to just grab hold of any new ism that comes along. And the reason some folks are ready to grab hold of any new ism is because there's a vacuum inside. But how do we fight those errors? Well, one way is we can just denounce them. Tear them to shreds. Show folks just how silly they are. Ultimately, the method of denunciation has never worked. And it never will. The denouncer always ends up stirring up a whole lot more snakes than he kills. So how do we proceed? We have to realize the only foe of darkness is light. And the only sure antagonist of error is truth. And think how the early saints demonstrated that. Those early saints went into a hard and forbidding world. A world where polytheism was old and polytheism was entrenched and polytheism was respectable. And their progress would have been at a snail's pace if they had gone in and begun their lectures and speeches and sermons by denouncing Jupiter for a tyrant and Venus for a bit of a harlot and on down through the list of all of those multiple gods those people of the ancient world had. 
They didn't do that. They went out and they proclaimed positively that Jesus Christ was the Savior of the world. And they did it with their lips by telling others about Jesus. But more significantly, they did it with their lives. They did it with their commitment. They did it by letting other people see Jesus Christ living in them. They did it by putting the Lord first in their lives. They did it by letting other people see that they loved the Lord and they loved the church and they loved their brothers and their sisters in Christ. Well, if that's the way they did it, what does it say of folks in our day and time who become carping critics of the local church and of their brothers and sisters in Christ? What does it say of folks in our day and time who say unkind things about the church and about their brothers and their sisters to those outside the church? What does it say of folks in our day and time who reach a point in life that they think it's all about them and their needs and their wants and not about the Lord and about the church and about the body of Christ. What message does that send to the man or woman of the world outside of Jesus Christ? The secret of a victorious church. And the secret of a victorious Christian is this. Letting others see Jesus living in us. It's a sad commentary to me on our example of Christianity. That so many people think of living the Christian life in terms of the negative. Ask the average man or woman outside the body of Christ to become a Christian, and too often they're going to think of that invitation in terms of what they're going to have to give up. We need to put the emphasis, folks, not on what folks give up to be Christians, but what you receive to be a Christian. Always the emphasis of Jesus when He was here, Jesus was on what we receive. Jesus said, I came to bring life. What kind of life, Lord? I came to bring life more abundantly. And in the New Testament, the key word of Christianity is always, receive ye, receive ye. And it's used over and over and over again. The road to victory is following Jesus Christ. Now, if you've never done that, if you've never started following Him, 
beg you to do it. To believe in Him with all your heart, turn your back on sin through repentance, confess His name and be baptized. Buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of past sins. Maybe you've done that. But you haven't lived that others see Jesus living in you. It's been observed that Jesus wasn't living in you. And you need to come back to the Lord. And let brothers and sisters pray with you and pray for you. We want to assist you in that. But the only way to live victoriously is to live for Jesus with a positive Christianity. And it's then, when we have lived for Jesus with a positive Christianity, it's then someday we'll hear Him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. It's His invitation as we stand and while we sing.